you please turn in your hymnals to um, your hymnals in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three. I would ask you to stand this morning for the reading of God's word, as is our custom, as was the custom in the uh, scriptures. Start reading in um, chapter 3 and verse 11. And he talks about bringing the Gentiles into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in the Old Testament had been strictly Jewish. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his grace, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. I ask you to go to, uh, to, and pray for me. Let's go silently and pray for me. Pray for yourselves as you sit in the proclamation of God's word this morning, that God would bless both sides of the pulpit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you, O God, for calling me to this service. I do thank you, Lord, for your grace. Help me as I preach your word this morning. Be with the congregation that they would hear and understand. And also pray that your spirit would apply this to us, we ask. If any are here outside of faith, we do pray for their conversion. Any here depressed, that you would encourage them. Any here in doubt, that you would build their faith up. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this portion in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is getting into the prayer that he's going to pray for these Ephesians. He started it in verse 1 of chapter 3 for this reason. He broke away from that. He's coming back to it now in chapter 3 and verse uh, 14. And because God has already blessed these Christians with a great deal of blessings, he goes to the Lord with confidence to pray for them. He does not doubt that they're Christians. He does not doubt that they're faithful. He's not doubt that they desire to grow in the grace and image of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have this passion. They have this goal to be more like Christ. So Paul prays for them with a great deal of confidence as he lifts this up. And he says, for whatever the reason, many of you are slow to pray. Uh, And uh, it is uh, that I do not think that uh, I got ahead of myself. Many of you here are slow to pray. Are you not? And then why is that? Is it perhaps because you think God simply doesn't hear? Is it perhaps because you prayed over something really, really passionately in the past and God said no? Is it because you think your troubles are so convoluted and so so uh, deeply rooted in your life that there's just no way God can do anything about those? Well... We are in danger of forfeiting great blessings if we don't pray. 
we are able to latch on to God's grace and experience God's blessings through prayer. And this morning, as we look at this text and this portion of the third chapter of Ephesians, one thing that comes clear to us is the Apostle Paul believed in praying. And he believed in praying here for other believers, and he also believed that God would bless that. Here's a question. Would God have you to be more Christ-like? Would God have you to be more godly? Would God have you to be more faithful? Would God have you to be more involved in repentance? And the answer to every one of those questions is yes, God would have that. He would. And yet, I'll say it again at the end of the sermon, so many of our prayers are gimme. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And we fail, I think, at times to really focus on what is most important, and that is God's church and the growth of that church and the growth of God's people. We do not want to be guilty of having someone that's visiting with us regularly and they're right on the edge of being converted. And yet they're never called to repentance. They're never encouraged to come to faith. They're never uh, dealt with as far as their responsibility for obedience. And what a sad thing that would be. Well, Paul this morning points out to us that because God hears the prayers of his people for his people, because God hears the prayers of his people for his people, we should be making intercession on behalf of one another and doing so with confidence. How often do you pray for the spiritual well-being of people in this congregation? Three things to notice this morning. The fatherhood of God means that he has a filial relationship with his people. The fatherhood of God indicates the church is one, and the fatherhood of God encourages Christians to pray. The first thing then, the fatherhood of God has a feeling, fatherhood of God means has a feeling relationship with his people or family. And then we have to ask this question, which many commentators did that, is God the father of non-believers? Is God the father of those who have not confessed faith? Well, that's a hard question to answer because of election, but I can tell you this. Yes and no. Is God the Father of all people? Yes and no. Acts chapter 17, 26 through 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they may feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each of us. In him we live and we move and we have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he is the father of everyone in the sense that he created all things. He created everything that is. As we read here in the text, from one man he created the entirety of the population of the world. From one individual. From Adam and from Eve. Well, what do these verses teach us about God? Well, in the first place, these verses and Acts teach us that God is the source of all life. Male and female, he created them. That answers the question, by the way, of this confusion that so many people seem to be having about their own identity. Male and female, he made them. He created them. One man and one woman. So we are not the product of some quirk of chance. We are not the product of uh, happenstance and evolution, uh, we are not something that is simply generated spontaneously on its own effort, and whether we are those who are fearfully and wonderfully made according to what the psalmist says in Psalm 
139. God created us by the word of his power. He spoke us into existence. That's how we came into being, through God's power. We also learned the sovereignty of God over the nations. As it says here in the text, he fixed the boundaries of the habitation that disposed of them as well. So hear this. The changes that take place in world history are governed by God. Every change that takes place governed by our great God and Redeemer. They do not happen by chance. God controls the nations. He is in control of the United States. Don't think that he's not. He is. He's not a, a kind of a wind-up-and-let-go sort of God. He's a hands-on God. And he's prospering his church that so we may not can see it as we would like to. Wouldn't it be great to see revival come to this land? Wouldn't it be great? It's not going to come so long as people don't preach the gospel from the pulpit. It's not going to happen. Because it's through the proclamation of God's word that hearts are changed. And if you want to hear a motivational speaker, you won't hear it here. Unless you're motivated by the gospel. Which I hope that all of us are motivated by the gospel. So God is sovereign over the history of the world. Over every nation that is on the face of the earth. We also recognize that God created us so that we might seek him out. This is what it says here. Learn of his power, his wisdom, and to worship him. In John 4, 23, Jesus encountered with the one at the well. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God desires the worship of his people. He delights in the worship of his people. And so he made us in order that we may worship him. We also learn of our constant dependence upon God for all things. In him we live. You continue to suck air into your lungs and survive because God gives you life. Your heart continues to beat because God gives you life. It is in him that we live. The days ordained for me before I have lived yet one of them. God has determined that day by day. The entire time we're on this earth, God has his hand upon us, sustaining us. In him we move. We get about. We move about. In him we move. And by his working we move. For we are being... uh, uh, For in him we have our being, our existence. If I'm reading this to you, it would be impossible to express in a more emphatic language our entire dependence upon God. It would be impossible to express in more emphatic language our dependence upon God, our entire dependence upon God. And, you know, if you recognize this and you want to, let's say, get another job or you want to have babies, whatever the case may happen to be, that God grants those to you. He grants his children. He grants you a new job. You see, if we gather and understand that God's hand is upon me providing all things for me, then what happens We give glory to God. We praise God. And that strips away humility. And it strips away self-centeredness and arrogance. Well, God then is the father of all by virtue of his creative power. But he is not the father of all people, as Paul uses the word here in the text. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father. Those who reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot call themselves children of God. Those who rejected Christ cannot call themselves children of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they are children of wrath and sons of disobedience. 
but not God's children in the sense that Paul uses it here. And they abide under God's displeasure as they live their lives day in and day out. But for the Christian, for those who are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for their Savior, it is an entirely different situation. For as believers, we are indeed God's children. And Jesus has told, as tells us in the, in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, pray in this way then, our Father, which art in heaven. So there Christ clearly expresses to us the way that we look at God is not as some deity that is far away or not as some deity that is uncaring, but rather we look at God as a loving Heavenly Father. And we should continue to think of that, think of God in those terms. He loves me. He wants to, to bless me. He wants me to love Him. And He gives me grace to love Him. And He gives me grace to worship. And He gives me grace to understand the, the things of Scripture. Because He loves me and God intends good for His people all the time. We address God in the same way that Jesus did. Think about that. We address God in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus was the Son of God. We are children of God as well. And yet there's a glaring difference between Christ's sonship and our sonship. Jesus is God's Son by nature. Eternally, the second person of the Godhead, at a point in time, taking flesh upon himself uh, to be the Son of God born uh, into this world through a miraculous working of the Father who was in heaven. He was conceived by a miracle. We, on the other hand, are daughters and sons by adoption. We are His. If I were to adopt a child legally, and that child became a legal heir, then what was mine would be a part of his as a child of mine. So we are heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, but Christ, again, is God's Son by right. We're not. Let me read this to you. John 1, 11 and 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him he, and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In that text in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, uh, we cry, Abba, Father. So we are adopted into God's family. And what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the children of God. We are received into the family of God by the work of God through his adopting us into his family. Let me read a quote by J.A. Packer. Only those who look to Jesus as mediator and sin bearer and go to God through him have any right to call on God as his children. Another quote from another commentator. There is no such thing as in Scripture, in Scripture as the universal fatherhood of God that saves all men. So at the end of the ages, we're going to have a great homecoming and everybody's going to be there. Uh, Adolf Hitler's going to be there. Those who've hated the name of Christ are going to be there. Uh, no, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what's going to take place at all. Rather, again, the sons of disobedience will be revealed at that day. And keep this in mind. Were it not for Jesus and his work on our behalf, 
Here we should be filled with the love and appreciation and gratitude for Christ. If we're not for Jesus, we would by no means have an opportunity or a chance of being one of God's children. It simply wouldn't happen. So all of because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to be saved and brought into God's family. The second thing is that the fatherhood of God signifies the church as a singular family. Paul has already pointed out that Jews and Gentiles are one. That was not the case prior to the coming of Christ. Uh, they had that wall in the temple that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. He says Christ has knocked that, broke that wall down. He's broken it down. He made us both one, he says. He's broken down the wall of hostility. And so that we have a common Savior then with those outside of our uh, particular fellowship, with those who are all over the world, we are one body in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether here or in Africa. Uh, when I was in Africa quite a few years ago now, uh, preaching at the uh, college, I went to a church called um, Zion is the name of it. And it was just uh, like being at home to be with these people and worshiping our God with these people, though they were a different culture, a different color, a uh, different language, uh, and uh, for the most part, yet we were able to worship and fellowship with these people because Christ unites us. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hear this. Because we have been adopted into God's family, we have certain privileges as the children of God. You have the privilege of coming before God to worship Him. He accepts your worship. We have the privilege of confessing our sins and being forgiven by God for our sins. We have the privilege and the freedom uh, to fellowship with one another and to encourage one another and to pray for one another. We have the freedom to be relieved of fear. What does John say in his epistle? Perfect love cast out fear. This is believers. Because we have an all-powerful God in heaven who rules over us, who has his hands upon us. And the moment that we die, he takes us to himself. We should never be afraid of anything. We shouldn't be afraid. I know that we are. But we shouldn't be afraid. What did Jesus say? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Don't be afraid of that one. Rather, feel the one who has the power to throw body and soul into hell. That's the one you fear, which is none other than God himself. Freedoms, privileges that we have as Christians, freedom to pray. But there are responsibilities placed upon us as well. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind. There is an obligation that is placed upon us once we become believers. We are to do that. We are to say, basically, Lord, you have your will first in my life. That's not an easy thing to do. You talk about some to somebody that's having a trial, and their heart is breaking, and their world's falling apart because of the severity of taking, whatever is taking place with them. And yet we are to tell them, you have to trust God in this. And it's not easy to do by any stretch of the imagination. When you're told your child has cancer... What are you going to do about it unless you trust God? When you're told your child has cancer, you recognize God's hand is upon your child as well as it is upon you. And you pray. And you seek God's face and seek the healing of the child. And when you lose a child, 
the great comfort of that time is the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great comfort that we have in living in this world. We have responsibility to trust God in all things, to keep his commandments. We are to love God. We are also supposed to love one another. That is an obligation that we have as Christians to love one another and to love one another deeply. And then as we consider that we are children of God, we come to Matthew 5:48, that mandate, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the mandate for us. That's our responsibility as Christians. You don't cop out by saying, well, I can't be perfect. Didn't say you could. That's the goal. That's the goal that Christ has given to us. You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the goal that we are trying to reach in our lives day by day, moment by moment. And then um, we recognize that uh, God's family includes all of those who have ever lived. The family on earth and the family in heaven. It says here in the text, uh, from whom the entire family in heaven and on earth is named. What does that mean? The Father, I, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family, every family in heaven and on earth is named. It means that we have been given the name of God placed upon us by God himself. That everybody who is a part of the church has that name placed upon them by God himself. And so that now you see we reflect the character of God as Christians. Not perfectly, not all the time, but we're supposed to. And there, should, there must be in the life of a professing believer evidences of sanctification. There must be. Because there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't grow in grace. So that has to be there. It may be just a glimmer at times. But it has to be there. And so the whole family remained from him, those in, on earth, the church throughout the world, and then those in heaven. Let me read something to you. One commentator said this. If we fail to understand... The church includes the church in heaven. We fail to understand the unity of the church includes those in heaven now. The unity of the church, which is united through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says we fail to grasp the value and the reality of what this is saying to us. And so let me read very quickly to you from the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter. And it's verses. Uh, uh, starting in verse uh, 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's talking about at Mount Sinai. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all the earth, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to be sprinkled with the blood that speaks better than the word of the blood of Abel. Do you see what he's saying here? That as opposed to those in the Old Testament who saw the evidence of God's presence there on the Mount Sinai with the thundering and the lightning and the voice that was terrible and the shaking of the mountain and so forth, we're not there. He says, brother, we have come to Mount Zion. We are a part of God's family. 
and we are entered into a relationship with God that includes those who are in heaven. And this should be a great comfort to us. We should not have any fretfulness about those who have died and gone on to glory. We shouldn't fret about that at all. Their life is better than ours at this point. We have come to Mount Zion, to the place where God dwells, to innumerable angels and to Christ himself. Think about that. We dwell in Zion. We dwell in the church. We dwell in the place where God dwells richly. And we feed upon his word. And we feed upon uh, his, uh, his being as we grow and is used as his Holy Spirit quickens us. It causes us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, then uh, the last thing is the fatherhood of God encourages Christians to pray. As Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. Oh, what reason is that then? Well, he looks to the back. He looks at what he said previously. Because you Gentiles are fellow heirs. Because you Gentiles are members of the same body. Because you Gentiles have embraced the promises of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the wisdom of God is seen in you and your inclusion in the church, the angels delight in that. As God's wisdom is seen in you coming into the faith. Those who at one time were not his people, those who now are his people, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Motivation for prayer is based in God's faithfulness, his love, and his willingness to hear us always. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, of whom the family in heaven and earth derives his name, because his grace has been upon you. Because you know Jesus Christ, because you are God's people, because he has blessed you with this, he will bless you with other things in the future. And let me say this. The greatest blessings we should desire are not temporal blessings. Rather, heavenly blessings, eternal blessings should be where our heart is. There is a gospel called uh, the prosperity gospel. It is worldly. It is earthly. It's concerned of things here. Why anybody would uh, exchange the glories of heaven for the glitter here that fades is baffling to me. Finally, the posture that he has in prayer. I kneel before the Father who is in heaven. One commentator said this. Uh, posture is, nothing, is not something that's indifferent in prayer. And he mentioned slouching. Uh, Joey Piper and I, years ago, when Joey was, um, I was in my internship with, with Dr. Piper, we drove to Mississippi. I don't remember why we drove to Mississippi. We prayed on the way over there for every member of the church in covenant, every one of them. He would pray, then I would pray. And the marvelous thing is, Joey had his eyes closed. He was driving. We didn't wreck. <laughs> it was kind of a miracle, you see. Well, he did, he did watch. But see, driving a car, we can pray driving an automobile. It's more about the heart and attitude than it is about posture. Although there are times when we do quite well to get on our knees before God and pray. It shows humility. It shows that we recognize our need for him. And at the garden, Jesus was on his face praying. Pleadings before God. And so our posture should demonstrate a great respect for God. And an honor for God as our great King and our great Lord. There was a song recorded by a guy named Eddie Fisher. I bet most of y'all do not know who Eddie Fisher was. I think he was married to Elizabeth Taylor at one time, something like that. 
uh, is in the 50s. And the song is titled, Oh My Papa. The words of it are, Oh my papa, to me he was so wonderful. Oh my papa, to me he was so good. He always understood. Do you see your father in heaven like that? He is so good. He always understands me. He is so loving. He is so kind. He is so merciful and gracious. And by his working, he has secured me a place in heaven. Oh, our God and our Father in heaven, how wonderful you are, how kind you are. Well, we should look at God aright as a loving and kind Father. Whenever he denies something to us, we have to believe that it was for our best. Whenever he says no, we have to believe it was for our best. And so we are to be people of prayer. We are to be people who pray for not simply illnesses, not simply blessings that are temporal, but for the church and God's people, spiritual blessings to be upon them. That's something that we really, really need to pray about. Alistair Begg quoted somebody, I don't know who it was, but he said at prayer meetings, we spend more time praying to keep people out of heaven than we do to get the wicked into heaven. And by that he meant we pray for healings and focus on that. And he said that, I don't know if you remember who he was quoting, I do not know, but that uh, we ought to be also spending t- much time in praying for those who are lost that they may come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cherish the, the spiritual gifts more than the temporal gifts and live under the idea that God's hand is always upon you. He's always aware. He's a loving Father. When you're hurting, He's aware. When you're in need, He is aware. When you're rejoicing, He is aware. But have that mindset that God is always with me. He always looks at me. He is always concerned with my life. And then what a comfort in the time of loss are these words by the Apostle Paul to know that the church of the redeemed that heaven's filled with people there, filled with them. People that you know that have died and gone to glory, they're there in heaven. Harry Reader, who died about a month ago or so, we know he's in heaven. He is with Christ and the company of the redeemed. What a comfort it is for us to know that. And what a comfort it is to recognize that we will see them again very, very soon. And you should have a great concern for the well-being of his church. Gossip can tear a church up quicker than anything. So we don't want to get involved in gossip or complaining, rather, to rejoicing in who we are in Christ and who one another is in Jesus as well. Do you know him? Do you love him? You're a Christian. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? You need him. For your salvation. Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.